Now, there were, uh, it, was, it was four, four days of painting the fence, of sanding the deck, and waxing the car. Four days of hard labor and sore muscles, and that's what the, uh, that's what the character Daniel LaRusso in The Karate Kid experienced as he sought to learn martial arts from his sensei, Mr. Miyagi. He finally got fed up with it and exploded that all I'm doing is doing slave labor. I'm not actually learning anything. And he, he gets ready to leave. So then Mr. Miyagi says, Daniel-san, come here. And he says, wax on. Wax off and paint the fence. And he has them demonstrate these things that he's been doing for multiple days and then shows how it integrates into martial arts. And the look on Daniel's face as he realizes, ah, oh, I've been learning something significant in the midst of all this, something he never expected, something that seems maybe kind of disconnected and, and, uh, and, and unexpected. He never, he never thought that he would learn those lessons from that experience. And I'm going to be honest and tell you, I felt a little bit of a similar shock and surprise even as I prepared this sermon. We're, we're going to approach a text that is just theologically glorious, that is a magnificent text of God's Word, and learn a, a potentially startling lesson. I want you to open up to Philippians chapter 2. Paul is encouraging the saints at Philippi with his love and his prayers for them. He encourages them that his imprisoned status is actually something to rejoice in, not be discouraged by, because ultimately his goal and his purpose is to glorify Christ, whether it's by life or by death. He urges them to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, even in the midst of their suffering and conflict. So then as Paul begins chapter 2, he urges them to unity as a church body. He says, the common bond of fellowship and encouragement and affection and compassion amongst Christians should be enough to bind them together in unity of mind, love, spirit, and purpose. And we're going to pick up here in verse 3 as Paul describes how that unity is fostered in a church body. Read with me starting in verse 3. He says this, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Consider what I just read. The, the heights of amazement of the person of Jesus Christ. He is equal to God. He was 
perfectly obedient, even unto a death, a horrible death that redeems sinners. He is exalted and preeminent. And one day he will be confessed as Lord by all men, bringing glory to God for the Father's plan. Books have been written on that passage. Books have been written on phrases of that passage. And the truths of, of, of Christ contained in those verses are magnificent. We should be in awe of him and what we see here. We should, we should marvel and wonder at the concept of God become man. How, how did the virgin birth occur? We should, we should scratch our heads and contemplate how is he both God and man? We should ponder the idea of Jesus' exaltation and his future glory, and we should encourage others to bow the knee now while it's voluntary as opposed to later when it's involuntary and mandatory. There's no doubt about that. And yet that's not the lesson that Paul has when he writes these words. Those magnificent truths are auxiliary to the point that Paul and God, through Paul, is trying to make for the Philippians. And it really is so seemingly basic that, that to me at least it's somewhat jarring to move from those truths to how Paul expects his readers to respond to those truths. You see, in the verses that we just read, Paul, Paul doesn't set out with the purpose of giving some sort of jaw-dropping theological treatise on the person of Christ. He doesn't set out to, to give um, an essay on, on the nature of the God-man himself and how, how inconceivable and yet true it is. No, in, in this passage that we just read, he actually just seeks to give two keys to true humility from a startling source. Two keys to humility from a startling source. And I say startling because of the depth and the breadth of what is contained in these verses. I mean, it practically begs to have some other point. Something about, wow, look at the amazingness of this, and man, God is in, he just, his ways are not our ways, and his thoughts aren't our thoughts, and, and how he thinks and what he does, just mind-blowing. You know, like that kind of a thing. But Paul's point here is to say, here's two keys for your humility. You consider the example of the Savior, and you conform to the example of the Savior. We're going to go a little bit backwards from Paul's actual flow here because I want to take those, those truths and that, the, the Christology, and I want to hold that up, and I want to shine a light on it. I want you to, to have your jaw dropped at it, and I want you to apply it in the way that we're supposed to. Not get, not get sidetracked, per se, by how amazing it is, but to, to, to understand the amazingness of it and then to understand how is it supposed to impact us and impact our lives. So let's pray, and then we'll begin in verse 6. Lord God, we thank you for the opportunity to consider Christ and in considering him to see how we should imitate him. Lord, please help me to be clear. 
As Myra prayed, give each one here soft hearts. I know I have been so stricken and convicted and encouraged by this, and I ask that you would create sanctifying change in each life here. Create salvific change in the lives of those who need it here this morning. Give us your grace and the work of your spirit now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read again, starting in verse 6. We find in verse 6 that Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Consider the idea of entitlement with me. Often it seems like our society is just inundated with the idea of entitlement. You know, a customer is always right. Well, sometimes they're really not. My kid must always be affirmed. Let's put the brakes on that. I deserve such and such a job or such and such a wage. I'm entitled to that. I can't believe how unfair life is. I deserve so much better. But, but who, who are we? We're, we're, I am one of billions of humans walking around as created beings thinking that I am the center of the universe and that I have entitlement and I have the, the ability to say that, well, I deserve fill in the blank. The irony of that is striking. And yet, there is one who is truly great and important. There is one who had status as God. He was equal with God. He was glorious as God is glorious. And that one is Jesus Christ. He was in the form of God. All those ideas being wrapped up in the form, his status, his fear of existence, the appearance of glory. Uh, in the high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus prays and he says, Lord, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the beginning. Jesus had that glory. Jesus had entitlement. Jesus had a claim. Jesus had status as God. He had glory as God. He dwelt where God dwelt. He was equal with God. He could rightly demand anything. He could rightly command anything. He could rightly and justly assert himself as the most important in any and every circumstance imaginable. But what did the second person of the Trinity do with that entitlement? He made a deliberate choice to let it go and to take a different form, a different status, a different glory. See, he could have viewed his equality with God as something to be clung to, something to be used for his own gain, his own, his own comfort, something to hold on to it for dear life. No, Father, I don't want to do that. That requires too much sacrifice. I deserve better than that. I am equal with you. I don't deserve that. 
But Jesus didn't view it that way. He didn't view his equality with God, his equal status and glory, as something to be leveraged for his own gain and prestige, his own comfort or self-advancement. This idea of regard, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, means that he made a deliberate choice that then influenced his actions. This is a mental term. This is, a, this is humility of mind that we are to consider. We see here one aspect of the example of Jesus that we are to consider the humility of his thinking, his perspective, his mindset. What follows, it wasn't some sort of ethereal feeling. I just feel like I ought to go and do this. This was a deliberate, mentally motivated, willful decision to take a course of action that demonstrated a particular mindset. And his mindset was that equality with God wasn't something to be clung to or grasped. It was something to be let go of for the sake of, as we'll find out, others. And so instead of grasping it, he willfully made the choice to let it go. And he emptied himself of that status by taking a different form. He didn't become less God, but he took a different place and status and glory by adding humanity to his deity. This is humility of action. We're going to consider his humility of action. This is called the kenosis, right? The emptying. And again, books and books and books and lots of, lots of trees killed for the sake of, of writing on this concept. But what's so interesting is that Paul is using this, this fantastic idea of kenosis to say, be humble. Be a servant. So as we consider the kenosis, the, the humility of Christ's actions, we need to keep in mind Paul's point overall. But we, it's evident here that Jesus didn't just think a certain way and content himself by saying, well, I, I've, I've got the right kind of thoughts. I sure think humbly. His humility of mind led to his humility of action. And that action looked like taking the form of a servant, specifically being born as a man. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. That is what emptying himself is, adding humanity. And here's where we go, wow, the virgin birth. What, what, what? Stay on track. Stay on track. What's Paul saying? Look at where Jesus was. Look at what he thought. And then look at what he did. He made the willful choice to say, all my entitlement is something, I don't need to cling to that. I can let that go for the sake of then acting in humility for the sake of others. As we go through this, I want you to note the progression of descent. Okay, look at this. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. There's, there's one step down the ladder. Uh, okay, lots and lots of steps down the ladder. Okay, but one step in the progression here, from God to man. That's a humbling addition. 
But then, it says in verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, parentheses, further by becoming obedient to the point of death. So he not only became a man, but he became an obedient man, obedient to such a degree that he then died. Even death on a cross. The most humiliating way of dying of the day. So from God to man to death on a cross. What a contrast. It's the highest of heights to the lowest of lows. It's, it's equality with God to a criminal's death amongst his own created beings. And this would have been possibly even more shocking to the Philippians' sensibilities than it, was, it is to ours because we, we're used to the idea of, of God becoming man. We're used to the concept at least, Right? We're used to the thought that God died on a cross. But in the Philippians world, status was everything, and, and furthering your status was everything. Using your, 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 uh, your, your means in work, your means in politics, your means in society to advance yourself was the name of the game. You did what you could to enhance your status as a leader. You leveraged your means in order to advance yourselves. And that's not that different from our own society. If you had a high status back in that day, you tended to flaunt it. Hey, check out my new chariot. It's the latest model. You know, look, look, these games. Hey, you want to come to the games that I'm sponsoring? Man, I'm part of the city council here. Look at these choices that I'm being asked to be made of. Aren't I great and involved in powerful decisions? That's nothing new for us. That was society back then as well. That was the cultural norm. In fact, the greatest leader of the day, had, Caesar, had nowhere to go, humanly speaking. So he said, you know what? I got to advance myself to the level of God. So please, worship me as God. Consider me as deity because that's the only other place to go. Everything was about advancing. Everything was about enhancing. Everything was about making much of self. And yet here, Paul was saying to the Philippians that a deity had not elevated himself. A deity, someone equal with God, did not use that to elevate himself. But instead, he had the humility of mind and the humility of action to intentionally lower himself to an inferior status. And then, in that inferior status, to lower himself to an inferior status within that inferior status. And then to the most inferior type of death, Imaginable. No greater humbling could be found. And it was all intentional. It was all others focused. It was all meant to serve. Jesus did it all to serve in two ways. One was to serve God. Let's look and see how it all ends up. It says in verse 9, For this reason also God highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Which this is not an abnormal concept, right? God gives grace to the humble, and you humble yourself so that he will then exalt you. And he did that with Christ. 
bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? To the glory of God the Father. The end result of his exaltation is that God the Father is glorified. Jesus says something similar to this, and in John 17, again, as he talks to the Father, he says, I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus' exaltation leads to the glory of the Father. And Jesus was willing to humble himself for the sake of serving the Father in this way. He was also willing to humble himself for our sakes, for yours and for mine. What was the objective of the cross? Was it his own satisfied feeling? This is, this is wonderful. This is really fulfilling. It was agony. Spiritual, physical agony. But what was the end? What was the objective of the cross? Why was he perfectly obedient? Why did he take the form of a man and then be perfectly obedient through life to the point of death, even death on a cross? It was the redemption of men. It was so that he could purchase you and purchase me from the penalty of sin. We were incapable of achieving that. And so the Son of God came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, we'll get there mm, late next year, maybe two years. So it's clear that Jesus humbled himself for the sake of others, ultimately for others. He thought not of himself, but of God the Father and of us. And he is our example we're to consider the example of the Savior. Consider his humility of mind. Consider his humility of action. He is the one to whom we should look when we ask, what is humility? Humility is most accurately defined as Christ exemplified it. Deliberately acting with selfless sacrifice on behalf of others for their good and God's glory. That's how I would term it, just thinking through what Christ did. C.J. Mahaney has a book called Humility. It's on our recommended reading list, therefore I recommend it to you. Okay? Mahaney in here says, serving others for the glory of God, this is the genuine expression of humility. And that's what then Paul expects from the Philippians and he expects them to conform to. So look back at verse 5 with me. It says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, even though he existed in, in, in equality with God, did not regard that as something to be grasped. So he's saying, all this that I'm going to say is the attitude that you need to be having in yourselves. So he's using Christ as, as an example of the mindset that he's instructing them to have. He's saying, look, here is a perfect picture of what I'm telling you to do and telling you to be. 
See, observe, contemplate his humility of mind. See, imitate his humility of action. That is what you are to do. Someone who went from absolute entitlement to complete humility for the sake of others. That's what we're to do. So how are we to conform to the example of the Savior? We can, we can see the areas of conformity in two areas of choice. A choice of mindset and a choice of focus. Let's look at the mindset here first in verse 3. On the one hand, we have a mindset in verse 3 that does things for self. Paul says in verse 3, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Okay, so here, here's, here's the choice of mindset that we have. One does things for self. It's a mindset that says, I am the most important. I am priority, number one, in my thinking. I am the most significant factor in my strategizing and my prioritizing. And this mindset is characterized by selfishness and empty conceit. This mindset looks at marriage and says, what do I get out of this? This mindset looks at children and says, you're here for my sake, kiddos. It looks at the church and says, well, are you going to meet my needs or not? It looks at a job and says, I will do whatever is necessary to advance myself regardless of consequences or impact on others. It looks at accomplishments and says, did you see what I just did? Come on, come on, come on, pat, pat me on the back. It's great, isn't it? That's what this mindset does. And those are examples of selfishness, okay? A mindset fixed on self, an empty conceit saying, oh man, I've got some really good things going for me. What is that? That's nothing. That is empty arrogance, empty pride, worthless conceit. And you know how much of what we do is supposed to come from that mindset? Nothing. Some of you may have missed it. Nothing. Make sure everybody's awake. Nothing. We are to do nothing from that mindset. That's the kind of emphasis that Paul places on this word. He starts the phrase by saying nothing from this and this and this and this. See, there's no compartmentalization, folks. We can't be gracious servants at church and then, and then a selfish person at home. Paul says nothing. We can't think of others in the home and then come to church and, and think of self. Nothing. We're to do Nothing. And we have to be careful because sometimes we can even seemingly do, do good or righteous things from these motives. That's what the preachers did in chapter 1. Paul says some of them are preaching Christ from these motivations. And Paul is gracious enough to say, hey, I'm just glad Christ is being preached. But he labels those as the motives even for preaching Christ 
So you have to really look at your heart, not just your actions. You have to really look at your mindset, not just your actions, and say, why am I doing what I'm doing? Am I doing it for me, for my own elevation and my own enhancement and my own status and my own sense of gratification, or am I doing it for the sake of others? So folks, if, you, if, if the desire to, to make a name for yourself or to draw attention to yourself is at the heart of anything, even what I'm doing right now, if, if, if I'm at the center of what I'm doing, we're not to do it. We are to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Instead, we are to have a humility of mind and make a deliberate choice in the opposite way. We're to deliberately count others as more important. Just as Christ did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, we are to regard one another as more important. It's not, this is not an issue of, of saying someone is better as some translations put it, it's, you know, it's not, that, it's not that we say, oh, you are such a better Christian than me. You know, and that's humility. Kind of putting self down for the sake of trying to elevate someone else in, in, in that thinking. Like, like self-deprecation is humility. It's not. It's not, that, it's not that we can say, well, I'm going to be humble. So, man, you, know, you, you really are a better basketball player than me. You know, and then that's, and that that's humility, false statements of, of the culture as is seemingly rampant. Humility of mind is not a self-effacing facade. It's not a self-effacing facade, but it's actually, it's actually looking around you and making the willful choice to perceive others as more important than yourself. To look at your wife, husbands, dads, to look at your wife and your kids and to say your needs and your good are more important than mine. Are more important than my own pursuits. To look around, around you right now, right now, and to look at the person next to you to look at the person down the road, behind you, in front of you, and to consider the needs and the good of that person as being higher priority than your own. Is anyone else feeling a little hot? It's convicting. I have been hammered over and over as I've thought about this and seen oh, those words are selfishly oriented. I, that action is selfishly oriented. I'm not thinking of my wife in that. I'm just time and time and time again as I've been thinking about these things to see my heart and how it reflects in my life. So I'm right there with you. But humility is sitting in your care group considering the people in it and looking at them through, through prioritization glasses as you look around and say, you're, you're more important. You look around, oh, your, your good and your needs are more important than my own pursuits. And that's the kind of mindset that we're to have because that's the kind of mindset that Jesus had. He didn't regard, regard equality with God as something to be grasped, 
but instead he made the willful choice. He made the willful choice to let that go and to esteem us and our good as more important than his own status and glory as God at that moment. This mindset then finds itself expressed or not expressed in the choice of focus that follows. Look at verse 4 with me. It says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Literally, each one of you not continually looking out for his own things, but also the things of others. The text here doesn't limit things. It's about as vague and general as it can be. And so the contrast is between a person solely focused on the things of self compared to a person focused on the things of others. And I think it's best to understand that this is an idea of inclusion, not an idea of exclusion. It's not saying you have to become some sort of ascetic that then to, to your own foolish degradation, you know, you, you don't eat for the next three weeks, four weeks, six weeks, and die because you're constantly handing out your food to others. It's, it's, not, it's not that kind of a, of a self-asceticism like that. And that's why the NASB, the NAS, says, don't look out merely for your own personal interests. The ESV says, let each one of you look not only to his own interests. Paul and the Lord know, we got that part covered. We know how to take care of ourselves. And so it's an idea of on top of that, don't just do that. Don't just look out for your own interests because you're going to do that. You got that. I got that. I'm good at that. But on top of that, also look out for the interests of others, considering them more important. Also look out for their interests. And it's a contrast of focus. It's this idea of what is the gaze of your life fixed on? What, what are the things that you want to do and obtain and accomplish? Is it, is it all, you know, kind of staring at your navel and saying, my good, my good, my good? Or are you thinking first and foremost of, of the good and priorities of others around you? Your spouse? Your children, your care group member, your brother or sister sitting behind you, around you in the chairs, your neighbor at home or work, they are to have our focus in terms of what we pursue. Above our own pursuits, we are to pursue their interests, what enhances and brings good to them and to their life, just like Jesus did. See, the great kenosis, the great emptying, the great truths of Christ contained in there are, are, are supposed to, to give you fuel to say, I will be like my Savior. I am so in awe of who he is and what he did that I'm going to go and do the same. Jesus focused his gaze on God's glory and our good 
And he humbled himself to the point of taking on humanity, being obedient to the point of death, and even dying on the cross so that he could obtain salvation for sinners. What good was accomplished through humility, through his humility? And what blessings were produced by his servant mindset? And that's the same as what we're to do. I want to challenge you right now. Think about your family. Think about your family and imagine your family where that's the pattern, that's the goal, that's the focus. That the dad considers his wife and kids as, as more important than himself. The mom considers her husband and kids as more important than themselves. That the kids are encouraged to consider each other as more important than themselves. And that's a long road to hoe, so don't be discouraged. <laughs> but what an impact that would make. Right? What an impact. And what an encouragement, too. I mean, what if nobody else has that perspective? And yet you are slugging it out as a follower of Christ, maybe even surrounded by unbelievers in your home or in your workplace, and you are just, by the power of the Holy Spirit, slugging it out in that context. You can show Christ. By considering others is more important than yourself. You can manifest the treasure, the value that you placed on Christ and who he is and what he's done in how you treat others in those ways. Uh, it is Mother's Day. Moms, think with me for a moment. How much of your job is focused on others? I mean, 30%? 50? Okay, 80 all right, a hundred. All right, now we're talking. Being, being a mom is, by and large, absolutely self-sacrificial. And maybe, don't, maybe people don't do much to reciprocate. Maybe you're like my wife and has, you know, a husband and children who, who struggle to remember. Man, what a, what a jewel of self-sacrifice and labor of love that she is and has. But can you see through this passage how who you are and what you have before you is an opportunity to reflect your Savior? As you contemplate Jesus and his sacrificial and selfless humbling for your sake, you can then take that and reflect it to whoever is around you. I, <laughs> I believe you can change poopy diapers, as a manifestation of your understanding of how Christ served you. That's the role of a servant. Time after time after time, I'm going to be, I'm going to be humble like my Lord, and I'm going to serve my family. I believe that you can do the laundry again and again and again and again and again and again for the good of your family as a way of reflecting how Christ assumed the role of a servant for your sake. You can sacrificially let go of those career or hobby goals or desires or expectations for the sake of shaping growing hearts and minds into an understanding of glory and humility of your Lord and Savior. You have the opportunity to demonstrate your understanding of and the truths of the kenosis in your mothering. 
by how you treat those that are around you and how much you imitate this humble Savior and his mindset and his actions. That's my piece on mothers. Men, what if on the way to work you prayed, Lord, help me to consider others as more important today? Lord, help me to do my job well and be a blessing to those that are around me. Do you think that would help you to maybe live out the second greatest commandment, which is love your neighbor as yourself? I think it would. What if you prayed on the way home, Father, I am so tired. It has been a long day, but I know you've called me to be a husband, and you've called me to be a father who sacrifices and considers others as more important. So, Lord, help me do that when I walk through that door. And then you walk through that door with the intentionality of showing Christ to your family and how you intentionally put them first. You think that would change the dynamics of the home and family? I think so. What about the impact on church family? What if, what if we each walked through the doors on a Sunday morning asking ourselves, how do I pursue the interests, the good of those around me? Rather than asking, how can I get them to meet my needs? How can I get them to pursue my interests? See, if we're all seeking to meet each other's needs and all seeking to put each other's interests above ourselves and to, and, and, and to, and to have a focus on each other's interests, you'll be okay. You'll be okay. And you'll be blessed to show Christ to others and to experience the joy of selfless serving. I mean, isn't that what you do when you serve on the parking crew? You sacrifice times in the worship service to be able to facilitate the safety, especially now, and organization of our church. Isn't that what you do when you hold babies down in the nursery? You say, I am going to consider whoever, I mean, you may not even know them, the mom of this baby, the father of this baby, the guardian of this baby, I'm going to consider them as more important. I'm going to hold them so that they can go and be fed and enjoy fellowship and communion with the Lord and with the brothers and sisters. That's what it is. And that's showing Christ to your church family. <laughs> it's such an encouragement when it happens. And it's my prayer that we would all be heightened in our awareness and heightened in our intentionality about this, that, that we would walk into our, our care group meetings, our Bible studies with an intentionality to serve those around us, to say to the person who hosts week after week after week after week, preps the food week after week after week, hey, can I, can I serve you and, and give you a respite and can, can we host, can we make the food? Man, you, you prayed for or you asked for prayer for this kind of a, of a need and for this circumstance in your life. I'm going to pray for you for the next three days. And can we meet on Thursday? I want to I know how you are. And I want to encourage you. I want to seek your interests. I'm going to have to get up early to do it, but that's okay. I'm going to have to stay up late to do it, but that's okay. Because I want your good. Because I want to be like my Savior who didn't even count equality with God as something to be grasped but humbled himself for our good and the glory of God. Our good and the glory of God. Kids, 
Eyes on me. Okay? One of the greatest chances for you to exemplify this and to, to show your understanding of this is with your friends and your brothers and sisters. Say you're playing with your brother or sister or your friend and they want to use, they want to use your favorite Lego character. You like Legos, don't you, Silas? Yeah. What if they want to use your favorite Lego character? Well, you can think about yourself and consider your needs as more important and you can hang on to that Lego character and say, no, mine. Or you can think, you know what? Jesus tried to serve others. I can serve others by letting my brother or my sister or my friend play with my Lego. Oh, or what about that last bite of ice cream on the cookie sundae? Who's going to get it? You could think about yourself and be like, ha, ah, that was good. Or you can think, oh, you know what? Jesus was a servant. I want to be like Jesus. You can, you can have that. You can have that. But folks, we, we have to do all this because we realize that we are not entitled. We are not entitled. We are, we are sinful wretches who were opposed to God as his enemies, and yet God himself showed deliberate humility in order to serve us. Such humility that he was willing to become a man and even die on a cross to pay for our sins. And then he rose three days later, and right now he invites each one of us to place our faith in him and what he's done through the cross and through the resurrection and to follow him. But part of following him is loving your neighbor as yourself. Part of following Jesus is counting, is regarding with humility of mind, regard one another as more important, more important than yourself. Jesus himself is our example. And so, so fix your eyes on him and meditate on him and what he's done and seek ways to apply that to your life. I've really been appreciating Pastor Rick's questions in terms of kind of saying, hey, go forth and think. You know, how does this impact? So I tried to come up with a couple. That's really small, isn't it? Hopefully you can read it. If not, email me and I'll give them to you. But frankly, they're easy. You can think of it yourself. The first question is, how can I keep Christ's example and the gospel forefront on my mind? Because you're not going to be able to do this just by thinking, I must serve. Oh, you are more important. I hate it, but you're more important. <laughs> that's, that's not going to work. You have to look at Jesus. And you have to say, look at my Savior. And I'm going to respond. Uh, in, in Mahaney's book, Humility, he's got some, some lists of practices that he does to pursue that, and it's helpful, and it's good. So again, I refer it to you and recommend it to you. Second question, what are some ways I currently pursue my own interests above the interests of others? Uh, you might even be bold enough to invite perspective from friends, coworkers, <laughs> spouses, Honey, how do I pursue my own interests above others? Whoo, and then, and then prayerfully brace, okay? 
So examine yourself to see maybe how you are living contrary to Christ's example. And then ask, well, in what ways can I begin to deliberately serve those around me? Well, how about my spouse? How about my kids? How about my roommate? How about my care group? How about my church family, neighbors, coworkers? You can tell this is going to take some thought. How can I deliberately walk into all these contexts and say, because of who Jesus is and what he's done, I'm going to consider you as more important and I'm going to pursue your good and God's glory in our lives together. Now note, this does not mean doing everything for everyone around you necessarily. Okay? It doesn't mean you don't necessarily love someone and pursue their interests by just meeting every like felt need or, 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 you know, okay, now you don't have to do anything. I'm going to do it all. That's not the point of this. The point is in your mind, how do I consider them as more important and seek their good and God's glory in our relationship? And that looks a myriad of ways, too, too many to, to try to give you know, specific examples. That's one of the things you need to think through. It is seeking their good and joy and growth and interests above your own. And I believe, Mission Road, that through the sanctifying grace of God, we can each grow in this. As we consider Jesus and as we seek to follow his example, we will grow in this. And he will be honored and lives and relationships will be changed.